At Fidelity, value is automatic, starting with the rate you can get on your cash when you open a new retail brokerage account. Learn more at fidelity.com slash trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I just try to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Did you know that I used to be a decent bowler? I was pretty much like a 140 roll. Enough that you'd want me on your team. Because while my roll wasn't smoking hot, my pin action always surprised. Getting me more than my fair share of strikes. I mention this because I thought we'd see strikes galore today after NVIDIA pre-announced a horrendous quarter and Caterpillar cut its forecast. But even though the Dow sank 209 points, S&P lost 0.78%, NASDAQ nosed 1.1%, we held up a lot better than I expected. Think about it. You have a semiconductor company that's well-known for its outrageously fast-growing chips and just a remarkable, remarkable management. And what happened? It took a meat axe to its estimates. And on top of that, you have Caterpillar blaming weakness in China for its biggest miss in 10 years? Shouldn't we have been obliterated? Nope. Instead, the pin action, surprisingly muted. The kind of roll where you would hit the one pin, glances off the two, and then it goes right into the gutter. Something that almost never happens. Yet that's exactly what we saw today in the market. Between NVIDIA and Caterpillar, you had to expect that all the pins would get knocked down in semiconductor and machinery stocks, right? I mean, these seem to be like two easy, obvious strikes, people. So why didn't the weakness spread like it would at the lanes? Simple, because this is some wacky, crazy sort of bull market. It's one that doesn't really want to go down. This is a market that has a lot of hope. Now, that hope has indeed paid off since the bottom in late December. And now big money managers are willing to press their bets, even in the face of really ugly numbers like we got from NVIDIA and Caterpillar. Rather than focusing on the current weakness, these fund managers are thinking about how things might look down the road usually don't look through that valley. It's incredible. The hope is so thick, for example, that we will get a trade deal with China. You know what? I wonder if the criminal charges federal prosecutors filed this very evening against Huawei, which is China's largest smartphone maker, will even dampen the enthusiasm. Stolen trade secrets, violating Iranian sanctions, serious stuff. Serious stuff that I, I believe it could be shrugged off tomorrow. So let's put these bowling balls in context. First, Caterpillar had a huge year in 2018. Let's give them that. Sales up 20% record earnings per share. Now, the company still had a monster shortfall in the fourth quarter. They earned $2.55. Sounds like a lot, right? But Wall Street, Wall Street wanted $2.99. That's a big, big differential. And their full-year earnings guidance is substantially lower than expected. Now, some of that bottom-line disappointment came from higher raw costs. But the most jarring part of Cat's conference call came when the company discussed China. Here's what they said, and I quote, We are forecasting the overall China market to be roughly flat in 2019, following two years of significant growth. China represents about 10 to 15 percent of our total construction industry sales and about 5 to 10 percent of total Caterpillar sales and revenues, end quote. 
Boom. That's what did it. China. The strength cats saw in the rest of the world, especially the United States, simply couldn't offset that Chinese weakness. So why wasn't that enough to crush the entire machinery sector? Well, for that matter, why was Caterpillar only down 9%? I mean, you could argue it should have been hit a lot harder. Well, there are two things going on here. One, the manufacturing uh, stocks, well, they already reflect plenty of pain from China where they're in, where they stand right the now. Caterpillar itself sells for just 10 times earnings here. It's not too risky if it's a company just forecasting still a modest game for the year. They're not forecasting a decline. That's the point. Second, China may be bad now, but what does happen if we get a trade deal? I'll tell you what will happen. I bet Cat would surge from $124 to $150 in a matter of days. So why sell it at $124? Contrast that with the safety stocks that didn't rally nearly as much as I thought they would on this economic weakness. They're simply too expensive here, even as we know they can make the numbers regardless of what happens with the global economy. Tremendous disparity between safety, paying too much, and these industrials, maybe we're paying too little. All right, now how about the pin action from NVIDIA? Which used to be a huge Kramer fave. The stock, the company's still a fave, but the stock, no. All right, NVIDIA was a complete blow-up. Management called out weakness in China, in gaming, and in the data center. And there was some negative pin action. Negative pin action to the cloud players. But the gaming stocks? Well, I'll tell you what happened there. They've already been obliterated. They've been pummeled. The data center providers? Hey, listen, last week Intel told us the business had some indigestion. So maybe... Some of the worst stuff was baked in. Oddly, like Caterpillar, even though NVIDIA was down nearly 14%, it wasn't down as much as you might have expected. It didn't get anywhere near its lows. Why wasn't it worse? First off, the stock had already been practically cut in half since September. Second, the semiconductor stocks are widely viewed as being tremendously undervalued here by most money managers. We just heard from Lam Research, the semiconductor equipment maker, and they indicated the industry's approaching a bottom. That's why the semi-pins teetered on the NVIDIA news, but then managed to stay standing. No strike, no spare, just the lead pin. Now, I have to admit, as much as I like the market at times since the bottom, I mean, I, I was not as sanguine as most of these buyers. We have so many potential nasty hurdles this week. By the way, AMD reports tomorrow with a book of business that's remarkably like NVIDIA's. Stock was down badly. Apple reports tomorrow, and they already pre-announced a terrible quarter. Hard to believe things have just gotten better, right? No. Facebook comes on Wednesday. A lot of chatter of a slowdown there. We also hear from Microsoft, which has a huge data center business. Same with Amazon on Thursday. If NVIDIA sees a slowdown in the data center, isn't that problematic for these two cloud titans? I want to wait and see before giving people the all clear because there's way too much uncertainty. But that's not how the big hedge funds view this market. They want to buy the stock of Xilinx, the 5G chip maker, with a stock that actually rallied this morning before closing down less than a percent today. They want Broadcom which spent most of the session in the black. The company buys back a ton of stock every day. Lamb Research and Western Digital both finished the day higher. I mean, come on. NVIDIA had that little read-through? Now, there were plenty of stocks that were ding. The Cloud Kings, like Toby, Salesforce, they got hit. But they were just giving back what they picked up at the end of last week. Deer, Eaton, and Cummins, three machinery companies that trade in sync with Cat, also pulled back. 
However, I buy some deer right here because the agriculture sector remains very strong. To me, though, today's big takeaway is that this market is extraordinarily resilient, especially considering how far we've come since the bottom. Many investors simply want to believe here. They want to believe. They believe in the possibility of a trade deal with China. They believe the Fed will stay on hold with its rate hikes. They are more worried about the missing upside than avoiding downside. It's just so hard to keep this one down. You want one more close-to-home example? Last night, Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, pretty much announced he was planning to run for president in 60 minutes. Now, Starbucks just reported a very good quarter. But what did we hear in the wake of Schultz's announcement? Democrats calling for boycotts to Starbucks if he runs because they'll siphon off votes from the party. On top of that, you know Schultz, Schultz will have to sell a huge slug of stock, pay for any campaign. We heard a $300 million amount kind of bandied about in 60 minutes. That's after tax. If he actually runs, he might need closer to a billion dollars before tax. Plus, there's the possibility that Starbucks will become more of a political football in China. So how badly was the stock hit? 19 cents. 19 cents decline. Bottom line, even on a bad day, this market remains incredibly resilient. After what we heard from NVIDIA and Caterpillar, it should and could have been much worse. Now the market's resilience will be tested multiple times this week, and some of those tests may turn out to be even worse than today. But for the moment, this did feel like a a glass half full kind of day, one that may continue in a very surprising fashion. Let's go to Michael in New York. Michael. Hey, Jim. Healthy and happy 2019. Why not? That's okay to say. I'm calling today about Cleveland Cliffs. Uh, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Cliffs was the only stock in the sector that actually killed the Dow and beat the S&P up about 6% last year. Right. Well, I think in the basic materials segment. Well, it's basic materials. Now, Valet, you know, had that terrible accident and the stock was down 18 percent today. Uh, And that's an iron makers. Maybe someone is extrapolating and says buy cliffs. I don't want to touch that or Freeport. They're too levered to growth. I'd rather buy uh, two. They need China to really come back. And that really does worry me. Uh, Cliffs because they need iron ore to tighten in price. Paul in Florida. Paul. Big booyah, Jim, from Sorrento, Florida. Oh, I'm a man, love that. Caller. Love that. What's but up? I've actually been listening to your shows for almost uh, since 2006. I just happened to catch it the first week you were on. But I just oh, want that's to thank fabulous. You for, thank you. I want to thank you for trying to make us all money. Thank you. Uh, my question is on BFC Corporation. The company, prior to its earnings announcement, said it was going to spin off it's mature and declining jeans business, which includes Lee Jeans and Wrangler. Right. Many of their brands, like uh, Vans, North Face, Timberland, mm-hmm. continue to do well, which yes. is reflected in their strong earnings report. Okay. Last week, on Monday, the stock jumped up $8 on that great news. With the, with the stock having a 52-week range of 62 to a high of 92. Right. Would you expect this 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 spinoff to possibly cause another jump in the stock price? Entirely and possible. Entirely a- possible. And I got to tell you, that conference call is one of the best conference calls of the year. So I would say buy half VF and then see what happens. Maybe it drops a little bit initially. But wow, what a fantastic quarter they had. All right, look, we're testing resilience this week. And boy, so far it's I know it's only Monday, but it's pretty extraordinary. Oh, everybody, tonight, after a tough day for the averages, wondering how strong the U.S. economy really is, I'll tell you why the rails could provide an answer. All aboard! Then tensions between Washington and Beijing may be dominating the headlines. That didn't stop Chinese companies from flocking to the U.S. with the number of Chinese IPOs hitting a 10-year high last year. What the wave of new companies means for the overall market, and are there any bargains? 
And through all the ups and downs in the oil sector over the past few months, he's one of the only guys that got it right, and he's joining me tonight. Don't make a move, and stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. At Fidelity, we work to get you a better price for every trade. See how much we saved investors last year at fidelity.com slash price improvement. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. The rest of the world may be in rough shape, as we know from Caterpillar's dismal numbers. But what about the U.S. economy? To answer that question, we need to look to the railroads. See, the rails are a terrific proxy for commerce in America. And after listening to the conference calls last week from Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern, my feeling is that we still have a very strong economy. However, our economy also seems to be decelerating just enough to keep the Federal Reserve from hitting us with another rate hike anytime soon. Something I wish Fed Chief Jay Powell would acknowledge when he does his Q&A on Wednesday. Let me walk you through my thought process here. First, judging by the railroad's earnings, their dividends, and their buybacks, there is no doubt that we have a robust economy. Both Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern are experiencing a halcyon moment when it comes to rewarding their shareholders. While their stocks only gave you a little upside last year, this is clearly a great time to be in the railroad business. Neither company saw a sudden fall off in their business, but, and this is a big but, they both saw a deceleration in the growth of some key economically sensitive cargoes versus previous quarters, and that's what I care about. Plus, at least in the case of Union Pacific, a lot of business was pulled forward as companies raced to beat the increase in tariffs on imports from China. This is a West Coast railroad that does a ton of Asia-related business, including a fabulous tie-up with SM Line out of Long Beach, California. So some of the strength at Union Pacific was likely an artificial spike related to tariffs. And it would be a mistake to extrapolate from all these numbers, but I fear that J-PAL will make the mistake, which is why I'm talking about it. Still, both railroads have plenty of bright spots, especially intermodal, the big corrugated containers that uh, can go from ships to trains to trucks. We know the trucking market is still on fire right now, so it makes sense that intermodal will be in fabulous shape. However, here's another however. Norfolk Southern noted that the trucking shortage was beginning to abate as the year ended. I record that as a warning sign. Both railroads saw strong chemical car loads, chief related to plastics, but vehicles, cars, trucks... No growth whatsoever, with neither company expecting much of an increase. If anything, maybe a decline is more likely. That's dispositive. Agriculture is almost always a bright spot for the rails, but not this year. The tariffs tariffs crushed Union Pacific's ag line, which saw a 10% decline in soybeans because the Chinese aren't buying. Again, too early to tell if that trade snaps back. I was heartened to see a 10% increase in construction cargoes for Union Pacific, primarily driven by rock which is vital for new roads, and a 19% rise in energy construction and manufacturing. That's part of the energy refining and shipping renaissance that's occurring in the southeast. It's a huge source of job growth. At the same time, though, 
If you're worried about inflation, the Fed's supposed to be worried, right? You have to like that the labor costs aren't going up much at all for the rails. In fact, these, these companies are ingenious, ingenious in finding ways to lay off workers thanks to precision scheduling now, which results in faster freight turnarounds, less wastage, and the need for far fewer workers. This process was pioneered by the late Hunter Harrison at Canadian Pacific years ago, and he then brought it to CSX before he passed away at the end of 2017. Union Pacific just hired Harrison's former lieutenant, Jim Venner, earlier this month. And as part of their their embrace of precision railroading, and boy, I think it's going to change them a lot, the stock market expected great things. Hey, you know what? This stock went up more than 10 points on the news. Put it all together, and the rails paint a picture that's consistent with what we're seeing from the rest of the economy. They had a deceleration month to month in the fourth quarter, fear of higher tariffs on Chinese goods, causing many orders to be pulled forward. At the same time, Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern delivered fantastic profits without experiencing much wage inflation. That's exactly what any Federal Reserve Board should want. I sure hope Jerome Powell, our wayward Fed chairman, is looking at these numbers because they suggest that we really don't need a rate hike here. To the extent the rails had a strong fourth quarter, much of it came from the desire to beat the scheduled increase in tariffs, not from an acceleration in our economy. So when Powell holds his press conference on Wednesday, I sure hope he continues to hold off on any talk about the need to tighten. You don't tighten when the economy is slowing in its rate of growth. It just makes no sense, and it never has. Stick with Kramer. downright bizarre. We're supposed to be in the middle of a really acrimonious trade war with China, right? Yet last year, we had a deluge of Chinese companies listing their stocks here in the United States. In 2018, get this, there were 31 Chinese IPOs, up from about a dozen the year before. And these deals raised roughly $8.5 billion in gross proceeds, meaning they accounted for 18% of the U.S. IPO market. They're our enemy? I mean, what's going on here? Apparently, business in China really want access. To, they want access to American capital. The question is, are these Chinese IPOs actually worth investing in? The Mad Money Party line on these deals, what I've been saying for years, is that you generally do want to avoid them. Sell, sell, sell. Or don't buy, don't buy. Every now and then, there's an exception, a special situation that's worth investing in. We try to point it out. But for the most part, Chinese IPOs have not been good opportunities for American investors. Even if the People's Republic was in great economic shape, instead of going through the worst slowdown since 1990, even if the trade talks were making fantastic progress and our tariffs on half of Chinese exports weren't about to spike from 10% to 25%, I would still be very hesitant to recommend these newly minted IPOs for the PRC. Why? Because you should only invest in the stocks of companies that you actually understand. And it's very hard for foreigners to get a good read on most Chinese companies, which is why I often throw my hands up and say, listen, guys, I can't give it to you. I can't give you what you want. I mean, really, how the heck are you supposed to get your arms around uh, Billy Billy? which sounds like when the Eagles called that Philly special play in last year's Super Bowl, but is actually a niche video platform aimed at teenagers. you got companies like IGE, which bills itself as the Chinese Netflix, or NEO, which bills itself as the Chinese Tesla. However, China has a very different regulatory environment than the United States, and they have a very different economy than anywhere in the West. We're talking about a communist regime here, people. Although, if you really want to be specific and you took some of the courses that I did, which you realize in Trotskyite terms, China's really more of a degenerated worker state. Either way, unless you're a real expert on China, you can't expect to understand the Chinese Netflix the same way you would understand the actual Netflix. Not that that's easy in itself. That makes it very difficult to figure out which of these Chinese IPOs might be winners, even in the best of times. 
And this is more like the worst of times for China. Don't take my word for it. The performance of these Chinese deals speaks for itself. Okay. Of the 31 Chinese stocks that came public in the U.S. last year, only 13 are up from their IPO prices. I call that bad odds. Make matters worse. Some of the losers have been truly terrible. Of the 31 Chinese IPO names from the class of 2018, six have seen their stocks plunge by more than 30% since they came public. Three of them have lost more than half of their value. Plus, most of the winners took a lot less attra- look a lot less attractive if you can't get a piece on the actual deal. The second best performer, Huya, is up 74.6% from its May IPO price, but it's only up 30.4% from the close on its first day of trading. Half the gain here was from the first day spike. Uh, Pindodo's rally fi- rallied 52% from its July IPO, yet its stock is only up 8.6% if you count from the close on the first day of trading. Then there's Chutaltillo, which priced at $7 and then closed at nearly $16 in its first day of trading before plunging back to $9 on day two. And it's been stuck in the single digits ever since. Unless you got a piece of Chutaltillo IPO and flipped it, you've lost money on this one. Just like that. Just because these stocks surge higher right out of the gate, that doesn't necessarily mean the buyers have done their homework. Now, like I mentioned before, there are some exceptions, and the exceptions might cloud your judgment, but I'm going to give them to you. Larger companies from China with higher profiles do tend to perform better. The four largest Chinese IPOs, the ones each raised more than a billion dollars in gross proceeds, all perform pretty well. And that includes Tencent Music, which we recommended hard last month. If you absolutely have to dabble in Chinese IPOs, please stick with the larger, high-quality companies that we know more about that even can be household names like Alibaba, only if you want to go there. By the way, I still like Tencent Music here. People describe this company as the Chinese Spotify, but I actually think it has a better business model, not to mention having 800 million monthly average users. Wow. Now, sure, Tencent Music makes money from subscriptions and ad sales, but most of their earnings come from this kind of thing that's only really in China. It's called micropayments. It's little digital gift certificates. The micropayment economy is gigantic in China, and this may be the best way to play it. Now, Tencent Music gave us, has given us a 12% gain since I recommended six weeks ago, and I think it's got more room to run. But to me, Tencent Music is the exception that proves the rule. It's a major company that's the subsidiary of the largest business, one of the largest businesses in China. Plus, when people call Tencent Music the Chinese Spotify, it's not just an analogy. Spotify believes in this story so much that they themselves own 9% of the company. Most Chinese IPOs simply don't have that kind of sponsorship. So once again, I want to review because this answer, I'm doing this because so many of you have asked me these questions, and I don't mean to just br- brush you off. When you take a look at the 31 Chinese companies that took their companies public in the U.S. last year, you see pretty much the same thing we've, seen, we've been noting for years. Most of these Chinese IPOs are of dubious quality with stocks that simply aren't suitable for the average individual investor. Unless you're a professional with an office in Shanghai, most Chinese IPOs are not worth the risk. Nearly 55% of these stocks are down from where they came public. 45% are down by 10% or more. Again, lousy odds. And remember, this is assuming you can even get in on the IPO itself, something that's hard to do unless you're an institutional money manager. If you bought these Chinese stocks on the open market, the returns are a lot worse because the few big winners tend to be snapped up early. So whenever you hear a story about a fresh new IPO from China that saw its stocks soar right out of the gate, I'm begging you, please, would you take a page from the Larry David playbook and curb your enthusiasm? Just looking at this Chinese class of 2018, only a little more, little more than a third of these stocks are up from their close on first day. Nearly two-thirds are down. 
That's terrible. Look, I've always been skeptical about investing in Chinese companies that take themselves public here in the United States. For every high-quality stock like Tencent Music Entertainment, there are a half dozen much lower-quality names that turn out to be totally toxic. And this is doubly true now that the Chinese economy is having its worst slowdown in decades. Bottom line, aside from a few obvious exceptions, most of these IPOs from China are simply not worth the risk. Frankly, if the White House wants to ratchet up the pressure on the PRC, they should think about making it more difficult for Chinese companies to access American capital markets. Why haven't they thought of this? It will give us more leverage in the trade war, and I think it would be a, a net positive for American investors. But I guess Trump has bigger walls to fry. Ryan in North Carolina. Ryan. Yes, sir. Hey, how you doing, Jim? Ryan, I am doing well. How about you? Not too bad. Hey, today I'm calling in to uh, to ask you about a company called UXIN. They're uh, they're a company that operates a uh, an online used car transaction service platform. It it uh, it, it it offers uh, an online auction, uh, an online right. retail, and an online financial services uh, out of China. Um, and the question I'm asking is um, over the last couple uh, of, of months, man, they've been kind of all right. over the place. Um, and right when the market kind of crashed and took this last little dip, right before it took the dip, they were up 200%. Right. But you uh, see, here's the problem, right? I don't actually even like that business. I don't like it here. I don't know why I would like it there. When I'm going to like a business in China, it's got to be a big market cap. This is a billion. It's got to be a business I like, which I don't like that one. So sorry to cut you off there, but it's not really my fave. Let's go to Jason in California. Jason. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Jason from Costa Mesa, California. How are you doing? I am doing well. How about you? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. Um, so my question is about the stock Camping World. Um, Camping World is below their IPO price, and it's a few bucks above the December 52-week low. With all the tariffs right. on aluminum and steel, the interest rate volatility, and the trade war deadline coming up in March, mm-hmm. should I increase my position now or wait until March? Well, you know what? what we got to do, I mean, you know, Marcus Lamone is a friend of the show. Uh, obviously, a great show on our network, The Profit, everybody loves that I talk to. I think we yep. have him back. The stock is down appreciably phony when he was on. And I think it's a horse's mouth situation. I really don't think I can. Uh, it, why not just get it from the guy? And I'd love to see him because he's delightful. The stock has been disappointing. All right. Last year was the year of Chinese IPOs, a ridiculous amount. And quite frankly, most of them are simply not worth the risk. I am not being xenophobic. I am not being jingoistic. I am being empirical. Now, much more mad money ahead, including my student, one of the top minds in the oil patch, a guy who has made us a fortune. If we follow him, where's the commodity headed? And I'm not just talking about crude. I'm talking about not gas. I'm going to find out. Then there are still profits to be made in the pot stocks. I don't know. I'm telling you, if the new year could bring green for the group after today's giant run and all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. When the stock market melted down the fourth quarter, the price of oil plummeted from $76 in early October down to $42 at its lowest near Christmas. Since then, crude has rebounded to $52 a barrel, but lots of investors are nervous that this weakness is very strong evidence that we're seeing some sort of slowdown in the global economy. That's why the S&P 500 always seems to get hit on days like today where the price of oil goes down. It gave up $1.50 today alone. Now, whenever I want to get a clear read on oil and gas, I always check in with Rusty Brazil. He's president and principal energy markets consultant for RBN 
energy because he has such an incredible track record and because, geez, is he ever readable. I read him every morning, as he knows, because I sent him an email almost all up. Rusty, welcome back to Man Money. Good to see you, sir. Have yeah, a good seat. Good to see you. Thanks. I cannot emphasize enough to people that if you want, and you've got a website so people can read some of the things that you do. It's free. Right, it's free. And you'd be nuts not to do it because you've had a tremendous call for years and years now. So let's start with the news that we just had happen. We saw the Treasury Secretary talk about uh, taking the, remitting, not remitting the proceeds for Venezuela. Does it really matter anymore? Venezuela, you taught me, used to be the biggest, and now it is very little. It's small. We're, we're only getting maybe 500, 600,000 barrels a day from Venezuela. So it's not a big deal. It is a specific kind of very heavy, very high sulfur crude oil. And if it were to disappear, the, it wouldn't be a good thing for the refineries that run it. The Valeros, the Chevrons, the, those, those sorts of refineries, they would have a problem making up for that kind of crude. But in the big scheme of life, let's face it, the Permian alone grew by a million barrels a day last year. So that is more than twice what we're getting from Venezuela now. Uh, so in the big scheme of life, it's not a huge deal. Okay, now you have followed the U.S. and what it's done. You predicted quite well. Uh, I've often gone back to how important is Saudi Arabia in an era when we keep adding and adding, and you're not saying that we're going to necessarily stop adding. No, we are going to keep adding, even though we're probably going to add less than we did last okay. year. But Saudi Arabia basically has one tool, one weapon, and that is to reduce production. Right. So they have the, the, the ability to basically forgo market share to U.S. producers. Gee, that doesn't sound like a really powerful weapon, does it? No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> okay. And tell me why, uh, why nat gas has been all over the place, because it's very hard to figure. I mean, you know, we had huge frigid uh, temperatures last week. We had frigid temperatures coming up this weekend. Yeah. It's plummeted. Yeah, so yeah, I guess gas prices were off like 25, 26 cents yeah. a day. So supply and demand are basically at balance in the United States. So that means that any little thing that hiccups can push natural gas prices okay. big time one way or the other. So we entered this heating season with very low natural gas uh, inventories. Why were inventories low? Well, partially because of weather. That's one thing that always happens. But also we're exporting a lot more natural gas right now. Five BCF a day in the form of liquefied natural gas, LNG, and five BCF a day to Mexico. 10 BCF a day is going out of the country, plus the fact that we had some weather. And then something else was going on, too. We actually saw higher use of natural gas by the power generation segment per degree day. In other words, for a given temperature, we're using more natural gas in, in 2018 than we did in 2017 and years before. Right, and so this is renewables are uh, good, but when it's not sunny, they got to do something. That's, that's pretty much it. So uh, we are using more renewables. Renewables are really gaining market share. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing. Whenever renewables gain market share, they're going to push something else out, right? So what's it going to be? Well, renewables are an intermittent source, so that means sometimes the sun doesn't shine, sometimes the wind doesn't blow. And when that happens, you don't go flip on a big coal-fired genera coal generation plant. It takes three days for the thing to heat up, three days for the thing to, uh, to cool down. No, you turn around and flip on a gas-fired peaker, gas demand goes up, and therefore we've actually seen total gas demand increase. That's put supply demand at this knife-edge point, okay. and so every time it gets cold, then 
then you see gas prices go to the moon. And what happened over the last couple of days is the, is the two-week forecasts came out saying okay. that we're going to have mild weather, not today, not right. tomorrow, but coming up. And because of the market's always anticipating, that meant the prices just got hammered today. All right. Now, when oil spiked up, you told me that the futures curve indicated that this may not last. What is the future curve saying right now? Exactly what it said before. Almost really? exactly. Always. Yeah. So when 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 gas when when crude oil prices at, let's say you were talking about crude oil prices. Yes, crude oil. Crude oil prices. So when crude oil prices got up to seventy-two bucks in October, the crude oil forward price in 2023, 2024 was at 58, 57 or so. So the futures price never jumped up into the 70s. Then as prices for crude oil fell from 72 down to wherever they are today, 52 or so, down by 20 bucks, all that happened to the price in the future was it's down about four or five dollars, down to 52, right, 53 right. or so. So in other words, the market has all has recognized that it was never going to be 70. Right. It was never going to be 40, right. 40 42. It's me. going to be bouncing back and forth right. between some number around 55. It, it, and or I did credit you when it was at 70. I said it's going lower. And that was Rusty's <laughs> work who said this is unrealistic. Last thing. Every morning I wake up or in the middle of the night I see oil down and then I hear, well, listen, oil's down because of weakness in China. Now, that is a newsletter headline. Does it make sense? Sort of. Yeah, because natural gas production is going to be uh, determined by crude oil prices, right? right? So if demand in China is down, if the economy in, Mm. in China's demand is down, that means the total demand for crude oil is going to be down. If crude oil demand drops, then total demand drops, then natural gas prices or crude oil prices are likely to decline too. So 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 the linkage is not insane. No, it's not insane. As a matter of fact, that's really the most important thing that's going on right now. And it's what happened back in 2014. In 2014, the economy got weaker. And when that happened, the market lost confidence in its ability to absorb incremental production of crude oil from the United States. That's exactly what happened in October. Wow. Okay, this is Rusty Brazil. He's the president and CEO of RBN Energy. Thank you, Rusty. Remember, when it was at 70, he said go. I credit him, but I sure did do it on our show. Man, buddy, back here to the break. It is time. It's time for the light. Okay, so wrap and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Because we're going to start with Nick in Florida. Nick. Hey, Jim. What's up, buddy? Not much. How about you, partner? Nothing much, man. Uh, big old booyah from Venice here. I'll take it. Uh, curious. I've been making some profit here in this neogenomics. I'm wondering if I should uh, close Cancer out. Cancer genetics positions. is a very, very big, great speculative area. Speculative, we saw that from Loxo Oncology when Lilly bought that company. I am not going to say that you can't speculate on that. I embrace it. Paul, Massachusetts, Paul. Hi, how you doing, Jim? I'm doing well, Paul. How about you? Uh, good, thanks. Uh, just want to know your opinion on Vicor as far as uh, a long-term play. Power, nah, power systems, I, I regard it as a commodity. I've looked at the company over and over again. I'm going to say, don't buy. Don't Let's buy. go to Jim in Colorado. In Colorado, Jim. 
thank you for taking my call, Mr. Kramer. You're quite welcome. You're taking a long-term, 10-year-plus position in a company that I think is a pinnacle of stability in this volatile market. It's got a family of great products for home and industrial use, buybacks in the future, a growing dividend, sitting just below its recent highs. What do you think of the WD-40 company? I've always liked that, and I've always liked RPM. These are companies that when you stroll the aisles of Home Depot, they're, what is there not to like? I embrace it. Nick in Virginia. Nick. Hey, Jim. I was uh, wondering what your thoughts were about the company Hero Price. You know what? A lot of people have turned on, on uh, a lot on all of these stocks that have to do with uh, with equities, picking equities. This yields 3%. It's a very well-run company. I'm not going to tell you to go away from it. I'm going to tell you to go toward it. Let's go to Chuck in California. Chuck. Chuck, hey Jim, how you doing? I am well. How about you, Chuck? Very well. Uh, listen, I have a kind of a large and varied portfolio. Been doing it about thirty years. I wanted to lower the overall beta, so I bought Clorox. Well, I think that's fine. But remember, you are paying a high multiple for Clorox. One of my themes this week and last week was the high multiple you're paying for safety. I like Clorox. I regard it as the best of the consumer packaged goods. But always remember, it is an expensive stock, and I prefer to get it at uh, maybe a 3% yield instead of 2.6. But Ben Odor is doing terrific, and I finally saw his uh, the Renew. I finally saw it in my Rite Aid, which to me is a very good sign. Let's go to Ahmed in Michigan. Ahmed. Hey, Jim Booyah, a long-time watcher, first-time caller over oh, a decade excellent. watching you. Thank you very much. Oh, excellent. Let's go. Yeah, question is CVS. I've had this stock for a while now, and it's not sure what it's doing. And All right, my here's what I've been is, telling uh, club members. Club members of ActionLearnersPlus.com, which follows along with my Travel Trust. I think CVS is one of the absolute cheapest stocks now that it's bought Aetna in the country. And Larry Merlot should come on air and tell us about it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. On a hideous day for the broader market, although I admit that it was worse at one point, I always search for the groups that manage to defy the gravitational pull of the average to get a sense of what's working. Today, it was the cannabis cohort, which blazed higher on no real news. In fact, these pot stocks have been getting high pretty consistently since the beginning of the year. The Alternative Harvest ETF, which aptly trades under the symbol MJ, has pole vaulted up more than 35% for 2019. Meanwhile, Kramer Fave Canopy Growth, which I have flogged endlessly here, has shot up nearly 89% over the same period, reversing nearly all of its losses from the monster fourth quarter sell-up. This volatile group was laid to waste last year and now is making a major comeback. Frankly, I hate to chase stocks that have run, so I can't in good conscience recommend the marijuana stocks after this move today. These things tend to seesaw back and forth, so I figured you get a better buying opportunity, but I want to give you the lay of the land. I still think that legalized weed is one of the great growth stories of our era. I think the total adjustable market is $500 billion. I'm really a bull, which is why we've had so many of these companies on the show, hopefully to explain where they fall within the cannabis ecosystem. Now, so for those of you who want to speculate on the bull market for Bud, hopefully at lower levels than where we are right now, I've got five predictions for the future of the marijuana industry, and if those are really involved, you might want to write these down because they're spot on. Prediction number one, 
This one's kind of obvious, I know. The legalization wave that's sweeping North America will continue. Canada ended cannabis prohibition in October. Here in the U.S., state after state has legalized or decriminalized, or at least allowed for medical marijuana. Nearly every time this gets put up for vote, legalization wins. Michigan just became, I mean, when you think of this, get this, became the 10th state to end prohibition when they voted in November. Well, that doesn't go into effect fully until next year. But Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, very much an establishing kind of guy, just came out in favor of legalizing recreational weed late last year. And given that his party controls both houses of the state legislature, this could happen a lot sooner than you might expect. Remember, these guys are all saying, hey, let's get the money and let's get the tax in. It's going to help their budget. Of course, every state could legalize this and marijuana would still be against the law until we get some action from the federal government. However, William Barr, President Trump's new nominee for attorney general, has indicated that he doesn't plan to go after marijuana users that are complying with state law. That was previous regime not. You were always concerned. Plus, I think Congress will be more willing to pass a law descheduling marijuana. Do you know that right now marijuana is classified like cocaine or heroin? Not kind of crazy? As our politicians realize this is actually a very popular, very mainstream position. Speaking of Congress... Brings to me uh, my, uh, to mind my second prediction: the rise of cannabis oil, and that cannabis oil is CBD. All right, this is really important. About a month ago, President Trump signed the 2018 Farm Bill into law. Why does that matter? Why should we care? Because Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell snuck a little provision into that Farm Bill, and that provision legalizes the cultivation of industrial hemp, meaning cannabis, which actually has very low levels of THC, the active ingredient that gets people high. So hemp is no longer a controlled substance. That's going to give the CBD market a major boost. Now, you may have seen these CBD products already. They're in a lot of stores. You can, I went to a, um, it's, you know, one of these rest stops in the, on the highway, and they had all these different teas that were CBD. They tasted terrible. Now, we know marijuana's medicinal properties, and in many cases, they aren't associated with THC, the part of the plant that gets you high. That's where CBD comes in. You get the medical benefits without getting stoned. I think the possibilities here are enormous. You can put it in food. You can put it in beverages. You can put it in skincare. Immediately after the farm bill passed, Canopy Growth, the best-of-breed player in the Canadian cannabis space, announced it would be entering the United States to play the CBD market. So expect to hear a lot more about CBD as 2019 goes on, because I believe this could be a massive opportunity. Some people think it's going to be the biggest beer. I don't think so. Prediction number three. Last year felt like the Wild West for the pot stocks. You've gotten all sorts of players, and it can be hard to tell which ones are legitimate. But in 2019, I'm betting we see the emergence of a handful of major operators. To some extent, this has happened already with Canopy Growth, Kronos, Tilray, and Aurora Cannabis separating themselves from the rest of the pack. Those are the big four. There's an even smaller subset of pot plays that have already built up a great deal of capital. Just Canopy and Kronos, thanks to investments from huge consumer packaged goods companies, really stand out. I think that gives them a huge advantage over the competition. Remember, uh, Canopy got $4 billion from Constellation. Now, how will these leaders establish themselves? In part, they'll do it by scooping up smaller players. Canopy already started going on a deal binge in November, and I think that's going to continue through this year, too. Fourth, I predict 2019 will be all about branding for the pot industry. Or as Mel Brooks put it in Spaceballs, merchandising, merchandising, merchandising. By the end of the year, I think the major marijuana brands will be household names. I expect a massive marketing push from these cannabis companies as they go from building out their production and distribution infrastructure to fighting each other for market share. Honestly, I find this really fascinating. How often do you see an industry start from scratch with no brand loyalty whatsoever? 
Cannabis is about as far as it gets from the traditional consumer packaged goods space where you might wear Old Spice deodorant because your granddad wore it. Me. That kind of, that kind of thing just simply doesn't really exist for marijuana. Hardly. So, if lawmakers allow it, expect a lot of slick marketing campaigns, celebrity endorsements, and anything else that these companies can think of to grab your attention and build a name for themselves. Finally, as the marijuana stocks get higher and higher, I think Wall Street will start giving more credit to a pair of marijuana-adjacent biotechs uh, called GW Pharmaceutical, which you know I've liked for a very long time, and Corbis, which we've also featured. We featured both on Mad Money. These are not pot companies. They are drug companies focused on developing artificial cannabinoids that mimic what cannabis does to your body. Corbis is a tiny speculative company that's trying to come up with treatments for inflammatory and fibrotic diseases, including cystic fibrosis. GW Pharma is focused on neurology, and they already have an epilepsy drug on the market. Why do I see these stocks benefiting? Because as cannabis companies try to push clinical trials for medicinal marijuana, and by the way, that's something that Canopy's doing, I think they're going to run into one big problem. They're going to run into a problem of dosing. At the end of the day, we're talking about a plant here. So there's always going to be a lot of variability between one batch and another. Drug companies like Corbis and GW, they don't have that problem. They can mimic the qualities of cannabis while also giving you a consistent dose. So as, as we get more and more data showing the efficacy of medicinal marijuana. I think more investors will embrace actual medicines that do the same thing as marijuana, but they do it more reliably so you can get a prescription. Bottom line, the cannabis cohort is red hot right now. Too hot for me, frankly, to recommend, at least at these levels. And I have been behind Canopy the whole way. But the next time the group pulls back, I want you to think about where this industry is headed. This is a huge growth business. So I want you to put Canopy and Kronos on your shopping list. The latter had a big move today. And wait patiently for the next sell-off because I need you to have a better entry point. Stick with Kramer. Hey, I'm bullish, but not as bullish as this market. NVIDIA and Caterpillar with no pin action? That was extraordinary, but here comes Apple and AMD, which was down big off of NVIDIA. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. I will see you tomorrow. At Fidelity, online U.S. stock and ETF trades are commission-free. $0 commission for online retail Fidelity account U.S. equity and ETF trades. Sell order assessment fee in some account types and securities excluded. See Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC.